0: Father, we come to you this morning, and um, Lord, I know for me, just with a very fast-paced weekend and fast-paced morning, and Lord, as we have the privilege now of opening your word and looking at these truths, Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity, alertness, and insight into your word, Lord, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel further. Lord, we're going to talk about uh, the consequences of sin and, um, and, Lord, just what this is. And, Lord, we just ask you that you would, again, give us clarity, insight, sobriety, Lord, at the state of the world. Um, yeah, that the world is dead in trespasses and sins. And we were too. And, Lord, you would just use this to remind us of who we were, who we now are, and why we preach. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, sir. Oh, I didn't read it, did I? Okay. All right. So we are now moving on to let's see point seven. So we pretty much covered point six. So point seven. So you remember last time when we were together, we looked at this reality that out of out of the um, transference of our sin and guilt from Adam. We are born in sin, and because we are in sin, because we are sinners, we sin actually in our life history. And now, this next point is dealing with the consequences of sin. And so, point seven says this the actual, or the consequences of sin, both inherited and actual, are separation from God in spiritual death complete disinheritance as children of God, subjection to all the miseries of this life, physical death, and e- eternal conscious punishment of, bo- of both soul and body in the lake of fire in the age to come. So, the consequences of sin. What I thought would be good would be to do a brief theology of, of death. Um, not fun. But, needful. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. And, what I tried to do is, I tried to survey what I thought were the relevant places to talk about this first point in our statement of faith faith about the reality of spiritual death. Um, So, I want to look at one passage to start us off in the New Testament, and then we'll go through a couple places in the Old Testament, and I hope we'll see that this whole idea of people being spiritually dead is pervasive. Um, it's not just an isolated verse in Ephesians 2, it's actually throughout. It's on the lips of Jesus in and, and just about every gospel, I think. Um, and so it's extremely important uh, for us to grasp this. And then uh, we'll look at uh, some of the implications of it. So, um, like I said, sin brings consequences. These are consequences. God responds to sin. You know, when, when Adam sin sins, God responds. He says that he will. And he must, because God is a just God. Um, consequences we experience, these is what is what we're going to talk about, the consequences we experience from both the inherited sinfulness of Adam and our actual sinning. And this is important to state because as we as the Bible teaches. We come into this world separated from God and inherently selfish, even before we commit actual sins. And our actual sinning continues to keep us separate from God. So we looked at that last week, Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Estranged from what? Well, I mean, they, they, they come forth estranged from God, from the womb. They are liars from birth. And one of the things that's interesting is about Adam is that Adam's name is his own. We believe in a historical Adam, and yet his, his name also means man. And so it's interesting that God sets it up this way, um, because not only does Adam sin, but we also learn that he represents all of us when he sins. And therefore, what he becomes, we become. Did he become a sinner worthy of judgment? So are we. And now we come into this world on death row. Um, God promised this. And so, I want to start, though, just looking briefly at Ephesians 2. I don't have this order in my notes, but I just figured it would be good to just start here. Ephesians 2. Now, Paul, you guys, I mean, you guys love Ephesians. I love Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 is glorious chapters in the Bible. And Ephesians 1 is all about what God has done for us in Christ. Beginning in eternity, and then in space-time history, what Christ has done and then the pouring out of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit. And then Paul ends up talking about this fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, seated at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. And He put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. And he's given him, God has given Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So this glorious truth, that we are saved by God's electing love redeemed by Christ sealed by his spirit Christ is at the right hand of God as the head we are the fullness of him that is there's a sense in which we complete Christ Christ is head right a body's not in a complete without a head or without a, a head is not a complete body we are the body the fullness of him who fills all in all and with all of that exalted language in mind Paul immediately moves to sort of the lowest base place that he can possibly fathom when he begins to describe our state before we were in this exalted state with Christ. Okay? This is is just so important in Ephesians 2.1 that we recognize, I mean, the chapter divisions are okay, but it's it's hard for us to really fold the, the real force because we feel like we read chapter 1, we come back three days later and we start chapter two. One of the things you have to realize is that he's talking about this glorious gospel in chapter one and what it does. But then Paul says, what links to which God had to go to bring you there? He brought you from death. Okay, and this is, this is why Paul, this is why it's important for us to look at this. He, he joins chapter one and chapter two of that word and. And you were dead. So wait a minute, so we were, we were elected in Christ, we, 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 we have Christ dying for us, we have Christ sealing us with the Holy Spirit, um, we have an inheritance that we'll never lose, all these things, and yet, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So when Paul thinks about all of us before we're in Christ, he thinks of us as in a state of death. Now, normally when we think of death, we do think of ceasing a physical life, uh, separation of body and soul, and that is true, and that is throughout Scripture. But here the death is tied to what in particular? This death that you, as, as, as living, moving human beings, was experienced tied to what and because of what? What's he say? trespasses and sins. So this death is immediately tied to trespasses and sins. right? The death that you experience, whether it's causal or whether it's resultant, it doesn't really matter because Paul is saying that this is the state in which death transpires. It's trespasses and sins. Now, when you think about the origins of death, where do you go? Genesis. Genesis. And is that original death also tied to trespass and sin. Yes, right? So Genesis 2, this is where we'll we'll pick up. But I just want you to see that it's not like it's it's really important to understand that as Paul thinks about all of us without exception before we're in Christ, he wants us to know that we're not it's not that we're like dead people. Okay, He says we are dead people because we are immersed and continually guilty of trespass and sins. This is the context in which this death is. When Paul thinks of death, he thinks of sin. And, and we're going to tease this out more. Genesis 2, Genesis two 17. So very familiar text. God sets it up where Adam gets it all. And he says, you can have it all, but, verse 16, from any tree of the garden, uh, from the, any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day, by Yom, that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, there's lots of ink spilled over these verses in the course of church history. But when you think about the fact that Paul connects trespasses and sins with death, you've got to go back here, right? Because, again, these aren't separate occasions. Death enters in because of transgression. We know that from Romans chapter 5. And God here pronounces and promises to Adam that in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Here he he defines what he means by day as that simultaneous moment and time frame when Adam eats the fruit. They They are together. Now some would say, well, the word just means when, but the word is day. It's the same word. So this is important because it's on this day, the day that Adam chooses to to establish by his own disobedience, that this death will come. So God defines day by the time when Adam eats. In the day you eat, you will die. He wants to be clear. This is the time frame. He doesn't just say, when you eat, you will die. He says, in the day you eat, you will die. And God is not a liar, right? We don't believe God's a liar. And as you think about what immediately happens afterwards, this makes sense to us. Really, from the standpoint of those who have the privilege of having the New Testament And being able to reflect more on the more fundamental idea of what death is and all it entails. Um, And it's interesting, isn't it, that Adam went on to live another nine centuries after this day. (laughs) So, ultimately, physical death did happen. 930 years or something like that. But God makes it clear that the day you eat of it, you will die. One of the things that we already pick up from Genesis 2 that you have to that I think is actually intended to blare at you is that death is far more than the ceasing of physical life. It's far more fun it's, it's more fundamental than just the ceasing of physical life. And I think that's actually what we should feel. When God says the day you eat of it you'll die and then Adam does not physically die you're dying you're like huh. What's going on here? You're supposed to understand something about the nature of death.
1: Did I got
2: a question? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, did this begin also physical death as long, along with spiritual death, or did physical death occur prior to?
0: You know, it's a, it's a good question. <clears throat> I did not have time to look up. Um, I did not have a time to look up passages where it actually talks about us being in the process of dying. Um, that'd be an interesting study. But yeah, of course. I mean, cell death, I think, started here. Right? Uh, yeah. I think cell death did start, if you want to get scientific, but right. yeah.
1: And I'm also thinking about, you know, creatures that are explicitly um, insectivores. You know, did they consume those? Like, or, you know, like, what, is it, what does it mean? Does
0: that mean you, mean you only eat insects? Eat insects? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know that I've heard of that.
1: But, like. I guess those
0: Do I think animal death happened after right. this and not I mean, before? Did it happen before? I I think so. I mean I I don't I think I don't think you could see you know a, a lion tear a caribou apart and think that that was good. Some of the, some of the I mean that that's that, just that, that that's a that's a that's a, that's a whole other. Yeah, the reason I say <laughs> that is
1: like some of the studies that go into you know death and you know origins and stuff like that said that you know big cats like lions and tigers mm-hmm. uh, that they're um, yeah, that their uh, their design actually allows them to eat fruits more so than it does to eat flesh. That it allows them to consume fruits in a in a, in a better way. It was mm-hmm. designed that way, and that God permitted you know them to consume flesh after the, after death. But I, I don't know.
0: Not I, just, excuse my pun, but the lion's share of the data, yeah. I think, in Genesis points to the fact that they ate green green plants, and then even when you get to to the covenant with noah god says now you can eat animals freely just like you eat plants freely so it seems to me that they were vegetarians and that there was an animal death but that's another okay. well, let me let me let me focus continue. on human human yeah. what what we mean here by death from a human perspective um the new testament of course again like i said expands out death but i i just want us to feel that reality that here in Genesis two, when Adam ate, death happened, and it wasn't a physical ceasing of life; it was alienation from God. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to argue, and I'm gonna try to move through a lot. That we hear death is separation from God, and I think that that's true. But I think, I think a better word might be banishment um, or intentional alienation. I think that's actually a little bit more accurate. Yeah, but yeah,
2: Adam probably lived a long time partook of the tree of knowledge
0: hard to say yeah hard it, hard it, to it say
2: it didn't, it didn't happen like you know we, we come in church and you know then seven days later he said Eve and them they, they did what they did I think they might have lived for quite a many years enjoying the garden of Eden long before. hard to say they were tempted by Satan
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say. We don't get a lot of that. We'll
2: find that out when we get there.
0: Right. That's right. That's right. If we can remember to ask. But death, I want to just argue, is, is fundamentally alienation and banishment from God. Um, and this makes sense when you think about the corollary of death, which is what? Life. What is life, biblically speaking? Is it living forever? No. no, it's not. It's knowing God, isn't it? It's being rightly related to God. That is the essence of life. John 17, 3, you guys know it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you and your son. Right. This is John 17, 3. This is the essence of life. So true life can only be understood in relation to God and knowing God. The essence of death, therefore, is being cut off from the fellowship and favor of God. And I think in this text of Genesis 2, we see that relationship with God broken. Um, so this, this, like I said, I think this expands our understanding of death. Listen to what happens immediately after eating the fruit. I mean, immediately after. Listen to what happens. You guys know this, but listen to it. Then the eyes of them both were opened. This is two, I'm not sure, I don't even I think it's three 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 eight, yeah, sorry. Three, seven, and eight. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So something mentally changed. Something something that they had never seen before or known before is now in their minds. And it's not a good thing. They knew they were naked. They were immediately they're dealing with insecurity. I mean, immediately. Why? Because their identity's lost. And they sew fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they don't go give him a hug. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from the Lord. They, they separated themselves from the Lord. So it's almost like they did that first. So there's shame. There's hiddenness. The Lord calls to the man and says, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. There's fear now. This idea that that I don't want to be around you anymore. I'm afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? See, God knew that when he eats, this kind of thing will happen. Man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree. So there's the blame shifting. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. More blame shifting. Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. Every beast of the field on your belly will go. So the curse comes. And God also says, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And he also tells man that he will return to dust. There's the physical death. And so he drove the man out. Again, banishment. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So, I think when Paul's reflecting back on this moment, he's saying all humanity died right there in that day, in their trespasses and sins. The immediate context in Genesis 3 is shame, hiddenness, blame shifting, insecurity, loss of identity, and a loss of inheritance too. And then, of course, there are further implications of this. Physical death is introduced, actually, not in Genesis 5 first, but in Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel. Driven by sin, driven by envy, rivalry spirit, he kills. And the rest of the scriptures bear out the fact that spiritual and physical death is in view when God says you will die. So I want to look at a few passages that tease this out. Isaiah 59, you can just listen on. Isaiah 59, 2 and 3 in verse 10. The whole chapter is very gripping. But just listen. Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. See what sin does? Sin brings a separation. It brings a severing. This is what you tell people all the time. This is your great problem. Does it mean that God doesn't know where they are? Of course not. Does it mean that God is in control of them and they're somehow in this other sphere doing their own thing? No. What does it mean? It means there is an absolute severing of any favorable relationship of knowing God. Of course, God knows about them, but they don't know. They don't walk with each other anymore. There's a severing. There's a breaking. There's a separation. Why? Because of sin. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So again, this is what you don't get. You don't get the attention, the favorable attention and affection of God in your sins. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue utters wickedness. And now now Isaiah sort of reflects on this reality. He says, we grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. We are like dead men. He reflects on his sin, and the the sin of the nation, more like it, and says, we are blind. We are dead. We stumble. God cannot look upon these people with favor, and reflecting on this, Isaiah says, We are like dead men. In, in, the, in the case of those who seem vigorous and strong, we are like dead men. They lack the vitality needed to live a godly life. I think that's what he means. I don't know what else it could mean. Ezekiel 37 Ezekiel 37 is a gripping passage, a really awesome passage with regard to the power of the gospel. In Ezekiel 37, um, this is a text where God is is holding out promise for Israel. In light of Israel's ongoing rebellion. God promises to gather Israel to himself in Ezekiel 36. and, And actually is some of the richest statements in there about the new covenant. God says, I'll I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll put my spirit in you, give you a heart of flesh. These kinds of things in Ezekiel 36. Such a rich text. You can read that at your your leisure. And God says, I'm going to reconstitute the people of, of God. I'm going to reconstitute Israel. And then in verse 37... What you find here is God giving Ezekiel the vision not only about how he's going to do it, but the state of the people for whom he's going to do it. In other words, what is the situation, what is the state of affairs of these people that he's going to bring to himself and recreate? What's the picture? And the picture is actually, it's not a hospital of a bunch of wounded people. It's not even, it's not even you, know, the, you know, sort of dead people with freshly laid corpses. It's actually a picture of bones. It's a picture of a valley filled with bones. The Lord, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the, in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Remember, this is God saying, I'm going to reconstitute my people Israel. And God shows them a valley full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. (laughs) like no, No meat left on the bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? That's what we ask ourselves every time we go door-to-door, right? Can, can these bones live? This is how, what's what we have to ask ourselves. And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. And the answer, of course, is yes. Verse 4, And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews back on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I, as I commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a rattling And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew skin and covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. It's a glorious text. So many things we could mention in this text. But God goes on and He explains the vision that this is is God, verse 14 putting my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. This is, this is what God is going to say. Verse 13, you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. God, when he looks at these people and he's looking at taking his people from the ends of the earth, because in other places it talks about him taking them from the nations here in chapter 37, he thinks of them coming out of their graves. And his spirit is placed within them. It's amazing. And I, I just don't, I mean, some people want to look at this passage and say it's the physical resurrection. I just don't think it is. I don't think it can be. The passage shows these people dead and not alive, connected to, to Israel's historic sinful rebellion. And, and their lack of, of future hope. And the reality of being cut off from God. In other words, this isn't about being raised in light of being physically dead. But rather spiritually lifeless. As Israel was, right? They were completely dead. As Isaiah says, they were dead men. This is a vision of God to Ezekiel regarding reconstituting his people. This is, this is the promise coming. Right off Ezekiel 36 where he says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. You're going to be clean. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And so on and so forth. And now he says, this is how. This is what it looks like. Also, when he says he raises them, he says that he raises them a great army. So, I mean, this—if this was the new heavens, new earth—what's the point of an army when there are no more enemies, right? In that sense, he raises them a great army. This is who you become. And also, there's no day of judgment in view here. And what gives them life? Well, it's the word of God. It's the word of the prophet. And in verse 15 to the rest of the chapter, again, which you can read at your leisure, God explains further that this resurrection is the moment when they are cleansed from their idols and uncleanness. These people were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what it is. That's how God views humanity. You should view humanity like that. You should view your lost neighbors and your lost co-workers and your lost friends as both in a desperate state, Right, Because one of the main things we want to learn from this is that this is a situation in which only God can work. He's the only one that can bring life here. This is not a matter of us going around and just having the right persuasive methods. That's not it. It's actual recreation. So you should look at people like that, that they are dead. And yet, because of God's word and the gospel, they can be made alive. And And he ties their idolatry and their uncleanness to this death. Ezekiel 47, we don't have time to go there, but you can read that at your leisure. The life giving river flowing from the throne of God that's promised. It's this picture of the water getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's um, healing trees there that's harkening back to Genesis 2. And 3, when death is introduced. Here in Ezekiel 47, this living water flows, and everything that it touches lives. I think it's a picture of the reign of Christ pouring out of the Spirit and bringing forth life in everything the Gospel touches that God deems to live. The pouring out of the Spirit. All the language in the prophets about the pouring out of the Spirit. This happens as Jesus goes to the throne of God and all this living water comes from Him. This is Ezekiel 47. Everything the water touches lives. What does that mean? Well, everything's dead. Everything's dead. And it's the living water that comes and that brings forth life. Jesus says, doesn't he in John 7, everyone who believes on me from from within him water will, will spring up to eternal life. You now have an inner source of life. Which is amazing. Did you raise your hand, Kerry? Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead.
2: in in this context of the dead the dry bones of the dead bones. Mhm. Mm-hmm. That function, mm-hmm. they just are incapable. It's not just that they're expelled or, or what's the word, uh, banished. banished. It's that they have no affinity toward you know to be carnally minded is death, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: -hmm But when God looks at them, this is yeah yes i, I think yeah, I think I agree with all that. It's just yeah it's as god as god it, it illustrates for us the state of who they are, I think this is what Paul does too. He wants to put them in the most of impossible, desperate states, which is what they are, which is dead, spiritually dead, lifeless, so. I, th- I think you could. I mean, obviously there are other places where God is, is proclaiming this to unbelievers too. Um, or, or to Israel, like when he says, I'm going to judge you and then you'll know that I am the Lord. I mean, I, I, think that, I think that in this context though, yeah, I think you could definitely say it has more to do with in a positive way that you'll know that I am the Lord. But, but yeah, this is tied to idolatry. This is tied to sin and rebellion. And when God looks at the human race, He sees them as dead in that sense. They are dead in trespasses and sins. This is this is what I think it is. I think it's actual too. I don't think it's. I mean, metaphorical. I'm not sure how much that helps or hurts the discussion, frankly. You know what I mean? Because I mean, it's a it's a reality. Well, they're living, yeah. They yeah, they're physically alive. Oh, and spiritually too. Whatever. However you want to frame it, they have souls, they minds. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, Yeah. but I think, but I think biblically though, this is the more fundamental idea of death than physical death. I think this is the more fundamental issue because it's what it's because we physically die, right? Even Christians physically die, but 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 as we're going to see here in a second, Jesus says some pretty things, some some things that are like we're going to not die, but we're going to die anyway. We'll we'll look at that. I quoted it. You didn't say it was. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's really prevalent there, and it's in a different sense than what you're talking about. And I mm-hmm. think the two things did occur. Yeah, yeah. Both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One, one, one is with the other. In the Gospels, this is just a comment here, there are instances of Jesus physically raising people, and I think that these, you, you know, you hear the language of, of, you hear the language of um, Jesus performing signs and, you know, signs and wonders. And these signs, these miracles he does are to point to things, right? So I think that when, for instance, he heals blind people, you can quickly get to the reality he's talking about. I mean, he really does heal blind people, but I think it's, it's pointing to the greater reality of, of, of spiritual Healing of spiritual blindness or hearing, unstopping deaf ears. It's interesting that we're given all of these instances where he heals blind people, he makes deaf people uh, listen or have, have their hearing back, he makes people who are lame to walk, and people who were dead, he, he, he gives them life. Jairus' daughter, the lady whose son was being buried, You know they were on the way to the, f- the funeral procession there, and Jesus stops him <laughs> and causes the guy to get up out of his casket. There's Lazarus. Right? He's dead. And what does Jesus say after he raises him him from the dead? He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. So that's interesting. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So how does Jesus define death here? First mention of death is physical death. That is, believers in Jesus have been given eternal life, and physical death will not stop this. I think that's the only way you can understand that. The next concept of death, though, has to be eternal death. Because it's a different death than what he said they will just he, than what he just said they will experience. They will die, and yet they will never die. It almost feels like a contradiction initially until you realize that eternal death after the resurrection is greater than physical death is in view, and we as believers will never experience this.
1: It says, "I am the resurrection
0: too. I am the resurrection and the life." That That's right.
1: That means that it's not just life, but it's like from death to life. That is your beginning state isn't being alive to begin with. It is, your beginning state is death. You are dead. Right.
0: Right. Yes. You are dead That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's an implication there that you're, right, that you are dead before Jesus gives life. That's exactly right. And it's predicated on faith. Right. It's predicated on faith. He who believes in me will live. Luke 9.60, an incidental comment. Jesus says, as this man is saying, hey, I want to follow you. But Jesus says what? You guys know, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. When Jesus describes average people doing something as common as performing burial services, he describes the ones burying and the ones being buried as dead. Jesus' perspective about human beings it's it's all, it just kind of it almost rolls off his tongue they are dead um i mean it, it's almost it's almost sort of a it's almost a subtle rebuke he's like oh you you want to go live with the dead it's almost a subtle rebuke and of course Jesus knows the man's heart so he's not being insensitive to that reality but Jesus knows the man's heart. The man wants to come to Jesus on his terms rather than on Jesus' terms. But Jesus' perspective about people, he just flatly says that they're dead. The prodigal son. Jesus gives the parable. It's always important to remember that. Jesus is the one who gives the parable. And when the prodigal son comes to and goes back to his father... The father says this, For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. It's a glorious picture. But again, this is, this is death. The father is looking that the son was living apart from him. And this was, this, was, this was in the father's mind, the essence of death. He's out there living for himself, away from the father. In John chapter 5, I think spiritual death and physical death are both in view here. Now, this is interesting. You can turn to John 5. Wow, it's already 1047? ain't got no time. All right, John 5. All right, starting in verse 21. Let's start in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will all marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Interesting. Passed out of death into life. Jesus' concept. This is not just metaphor, I think. I think this is a reality. That people are spiritually dead, and when they believe in him, they pass out of death into life. It's predicated on faith, not the resurrection. Not the resurrection in the future. Verse 25 He undergirds this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And it all has to do with this whole aspect of having life in himself. Verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son to have life in himself. So the Father has eternal life in himself. And now he grants, okay, we can talk about that with that. Kind of means that if Father grants eternal life to the Son. But whatever it is, it's 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 the life that's given to others that causes them to pass from death to life before they're physically dead. Right? They're passing out of death into life. So Jesus says the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. And I think that here in these verses we just read, he's speaking of regeneration. He's speaking of, he's just speaking of that coming to spiritual life. Um, and I'm inclined to think it's the life of regeneration and faith because it's spoken of in the present tense. The Son is giving life to whom he wishes. And, and like I said, the, the, the verse teases this out in verse 24. He's passed out of death into life. We all were dead. Dead. I mean, just completely in a state of desperation. And the glorious thing is the one who has believed in Jesus currently possesses eternal life. So that's a, that's a wonderful reality. Hallelujah. Um, and then, then he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's about those who hearing will live. And then he goes on to talk about how this translates even to the physical resurrection in verse 26 and following. Verse 29, he talks about the resurrection. Those who did the good to resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to resurrection of judgment. Now, moving on from the Gospels, Romans 6, Paul says, consider yourselves as those alive from the dead. That we live in resurrection existence now. First 1 Corinthians, First Corinthians talks about those who are perishing. In terms of those who don't believe, those, they are perishing. They're in a state right now of perishing. And when they finally perish, it will just be continuing on that train. Ephesians 2. We can camp here for a minute. Ephesians 2. Again, I want us to see that this is not some isolated thing. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And I think you now understand where Paul gets this idea of death. How could Paul assess people this way? I think it's because he he takes Genesis the way that I've described it, and perhaps Jesus' words. He knows his Old Testament. And what does the state of spiritual death look like or consist of? Well, trespasses and sins. And from this text we learn all Christians used to be dead. We all used to be dead. And the death here is separation from God, a complete moral inability to follow God. A resurrection, therefore, must take place. This is why in verse 5, Paul goes on to say, in chapter 2, verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Here again, the death we were in consisted of a life of transgression. And this was separation separation from God fundamentally. That's why it's called death. And um, if you look at verse 12 and following, you'll see that separated from Christ, estranged from God. We'll look at that a little bit later, but there's that language of separation there without God and without or without hope and without God in the world. Without God in the world. And here we have one of the main texts too in Ephesians two five, and this is important. When you think about the fact of what does this death mean? Okay, what is it? We say, yeah, it's in transgression and sin, but what is it? Well, one of, this, this, this text here helps us. It helps illustrate for us what sense Paul has in mind by death. He says here that we were dead in our transgressions and made alive together with Christ. So we were dead in such a way as only God could remedy. Again, I've said it over and over, but this puts a real fine point on it an absolute moral inability to heal ourselves or save ourselves. This is why it's but God, but God, but God. He had to raise us from the dead. This is the reality. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. This is what happened to every Christian. We were raised. Morally unable to come to God. Didn't want God. Wanted to hide from God. Wanted to cover ourselves up. Wanted to try to, 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 to bring about our own, I don't know, coverings. Maybe we could say that's religion, I don't know. But there's this reality that we didn't want Him. We were sinners through and through, transgressors through and through, and God made us alive Together with Christ. Ephesians five, as Paul is talking to the saints here about not participating in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather exposing him in Ephesians five, he says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, this is not an isolated idea. This is all over the place. Colossians 2 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. So you were really dead. And really indifferent and, and, and unresponsive to God in any way, wanting to go your own way in transgressions, God made you alive together with him and forgave you all your transgressions. That's Colossians 2.13. First Timothy 5. Now she who is a widow indeed has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties prayers day and night. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Here again, Paul sees a life given to following lust as death, not alive to the Lord and his ways. He doesn't just say this lifestyle leads to death. He describes the female hedonist as dead, even while she physically lives. 1 John 3.14, John says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love remains or abides in death. It's pervasive. The New Testament, I mean, is pervasive on this whole idea that being in sin and in transgression and in Adam is spiritual death. But John says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Love is the indicator someone has life. And not just loving anyone, it's loving other believers think of this it's a massive issue it's only possible for resurre- resurrection existence if you're going to love the saints it's only the one who's passed out of death that can truly love but if one doesn't love other believers then they are not only dead they remain in death that is death isn't just occasional choices it's a state of being they abide in death they stay there jude 1:12 talking about false prophets Jude calls them doubly dead, uprooted, trees without fruit. Revelation 20, 14 through 15. And the sea gave up the dead. So this is talking about the final judgment. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So death in Hades is the first death. The second death is the lake of fire. And those who were not found in the book are thrown into the lake of fire. There's that language of thrown, banishment. The language of being cast into hell is over and over and over. Uh, this, this, this active thing that God does. They are thrown. They are cast. So here, the first death, the physical death, is contrasted with the second death, which is the state of being in the lake of fire. Obviously, these are two different deaths. makes no sense for them to be the same. And what happens in the lake of fire? Well, John tells us what happens in, in chapter 14, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm sorry, that's earlier in chapter 20 where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is what happens in the lake of fire. So the second death is torment day and night, forever and ever. Experiencing this sheds light on why Jesus could say it'd be better for Judas to never exist. Why? Because non-existence is good news if your destiny is the second death. Now think of the passages that point out separation from God. Think of these. I'm just going to fly through them. What does God do to Adam after he sins? Banishes him from the garden. What does God do to wicked Israel as they continue to rebel? Exile. What does Isaiah say? Your sins have, have separated, separated us. Paul says in Colossians, you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, but alienated. Ephesians 2, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. What does Paul say as he thinks about these Jews, these fellow kinsmen? What does he say? I myself wish that I could be accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren. This is what Paul thinks about the, this, the destiny of the damned. They will be separate from Christ. Paul says, if I could trade places with them and be separate from Christ, I would do that. Right? That's crazy love. I think of... Yeah. Sure. Live as Christ. Sure, yeah. But Paul says that but the idea there obviously is that if I could be separate and they could be included, I'd do that. Not that he not that he can, but well I mean I don't know. But but what I'm trying to point out is how does he understand the destiny of these people separated from Christ, you know? This is what I want us to feel. Think of Jesus' final words to the wicked, Matthew 7. Depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus' parable of the virgins. The, the, there are some that are not ready. And it says the door was shut as he comes back in the second coming. The door was shut. And later the, virgin, the other virgins who were not ready come saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Here those not prepared for Christ will experience final banishment and alienation from Christ. The door will not open back up for them. It's just the horror of an eternal exclusion. Verse 20, Matthew 25, that you will say to those on the left, depart from me. Again, it's always about this. It's about this separation. It's about this banishment. It's a, depart from me. Accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment the righteous into eternal life they'll be banished from Jesus glorious and loving presence into eternal punishment created for the devil and his angels which as an aside those unbelievers thrown into the place created for the devil and his angels will suffer the same destiny of the devil it makes no sense to say that they say they they suffer a different fate if they're in the same place which was created for eternal eternal punishment and after the wicked are consigned to the lake of fire along with the devil and the false prophet, John says this about the state of the wicked. And then we'll close. Revelation 2214 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who practices lying. Brethren, the wicked are outside. They're outside. They are cut off, banished. It's not mere separation. It's intentional alienation. In the city, the righteous have the tree of life. We have life with God. We see His face. We have the true worship of God. We have truth. We have love inside the city. But outside is outer darkness. It's unquenchable fire. It is away from the Lord. This is clear over and over and over and over in the Bible. We're going to look at a place next week. Next week we'll deal a little bit more specifically with eternal conscious punishment. Um, and look at this more clearly. We'll probably bring up some of these same texts. But this is the essence of it. It's away from the Lord. And that's, um, that's what we'll look at. So, Alright. And don't forget, what did Jesus say when he was on the cross? <laughs> why have you forsaken me? What? Well, he said, why have, they, why, why have you forsaken me, right? Because the essence of it is being apart from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I know that that was a fire hose of scripture and thoughts, and Lord, I just want um, us all to just recognize the reality of, of the just the bleak picture for human beings, including us before we knew you. Lord, that we might rejoice truly in what you've done. Lord, you haven't just merely made us better people. Lord, you've given us life. You've made us alive from the dead. And Lord, we just, we, we just need these reminders to remember that we are miracles. We are miracles of your grace. We praise you for not leaving us in that state. Lord, help us to sing to you as those alive from the dead in these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen.